That is a beautiful song, and it raises some profound questions. Questions have power, don't they? Questions can lead us our our whole lives down a certain track. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? That's an intimidating question. Did you clean your room? You better answer that one right. (laughs) What do you want to be when you grow up? That question's full of possibility. Will you marry me? You better know the answer to that one before you ask. (laughs) We're starting a brand new sermon series today talking about questions. A couple months ago, I asked the congregation to submit questions that we could answer on Sunday morning. Some of them were very serious. Some were kind of lighthearted. If you're new to Chapel Rock, if you're visiting today, or if if, uh, it's your first time, maybe you've just been coming a couple weeks, I want to thank you for being here. My name is Casey. I would love to meet you. When we're all done today, uh, I'll be right down here when we're finished. Please come down, say hi if you're new. Introduce yourself. I'd love to greet you today. Uh, Just thank you for being here. Uh, If you're joining us online, Thank you so much for logging in. Uh, Last week, we had our highest online audience ever, and so we're really excited that you're part of that. If you're local, we'd love to have you visit us on site. We feel like there's some things you can only get when you're here. Uh, But we're glad you're logging in from wherever you are. As I said, we're in a new sermon series today. We're talking about questions. Uh, Over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at some some interesting things. As you leave today, you're going to be handed one of these cards. It's about the size of a phone. Uh, It's it's got the the series title, You Ask For It, on there, and the questions that we're going to be dealing with over the next several weeks. Uh, On the back of it are the various ways that you can get connected with Chapel Rock. And so as as you go out, our ushers will hand you one of these cards. I would encourage you, take this home with you, stick it on the fridge, uh, and be thinking about this. And if you've got a friend who's like, oh, next week, what happens when we die? I had a conversation with Bob about that last week. Uh, I'm going to invite him to come with me. Or on the 30th, how should the church handle gender? That's a PG-13 sermon, by the way. We were just talking about this at the office. I'm going to invite Mary to come with me. So it'll be a great resource for you. Maybe you could hand him this. Uh, When you go, you'll be handed one of those. I don't know about you, but uh, I have moments where random, odd questions will just kind of run through my mind. I I wonder about stuff. There's just odd little things. I have these questions. For example, why isn't there another word for synonym? (laughs) That doesn't make sense to me. Why isn't there a special name for the tops of your feet? Shoulder, elbow, wrist, knee, top of foot. It just, I wonder, why don't we, why didn't we come up with a name for that? Why is it that when you're driving in an unfamiliar area and you're looking for an address, you turn down the volume on the radio? It doesn't, it, I'm not the only one, okay. It doesn't help you see any better. It's not like the house is calling to you, hey, I'm 4622, I'm over here. Why is abbreviation such a long word? Related to that, why is dyslexic so hard to spell? That's a cruel joke. And I, this one, I, every morning, I think of this question almost every morning when I make breakfast. Why? Someone tell me why. Every toaster ever manufactured has a setting on it that will burn bread beyond the ability of any decent human being to eat it. Who is eating level 10 toast? 
I need to know this. <laughs> a toaster ought to have two settings. Warm up a Pop-Tart, golden brown and delicious, that's all. Stop at that point. But let's be honest, the stuff that wanders through our mind maybe late at night or on a long drive by yourself, some of those questions aren't that important. But the questions raised by the song you just heard are vitally important. And on this Resurrection Sunday, the question we're asking comes from Stephen King, someone who attends here at Chapel Rock, not the author, <laughs> though that would be cool. Um, he asked the question, essentially, why was Jesus in the tomb three days? Now, the question really comes from something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Look at this passage. Jesus is speaking. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Stephen asked the question, well, how long was he in there? Was it three nights or... Just a couple or how, how long? Because Jesus is predicting his own passion here. This is the first passion prediction of Jesus. How long was he in there? When you read the resurrection accounts in, in the, at the end of the Gospels, it's really clear that Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sins Friday afternoon, was raised from the dead early Saturday or Sunday morning. He's barely in there 36 hours. It really only comprises two evenings, you know, Friday night and Saturday night. But he said he'd be in there three nights. So which was it? How long was he in there? Well, what's going on? Let's, let's read the text together. Uh, read with me in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. Luke 24, we're going we're gonna to read this passage together. Turn, turn there. Now, I, let's, before, we, before we read it, though, let's deal with this question. Why was Jesus in the tomb three days? It's a great question, and I think it's important to note before we read the text that the question is stated in the past tense. Did you catch that? Why was Jesus in the tomb three days? Implication, he's not there now. He is risen. See, you can go to the tomb of Muhammad. You can go to the tomb of the Buddha. You can go to the tomb of Confucius. You can visit the supposed graves of Abraham and Moses and David. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, the only thing you will find is a long line of people patiently waiting to see an empty grave. So Luke tells us the story in Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, Matthew tells us they were angels, stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. So why was Jesus in the tomb three days? Why did it take three days? Related to that, why not also three nights like Jesus said in Matthew 12? It's a good question. Here's how the Bible answers that. Jesus rose on the third day to prove that God is faithful. That's our big idea this morning. Jesus rose on the third day to prove that God is faithful. 
And when you look at the whole Bible, you'll see that there are four areas where the resurrection of Jesus proves the faithfulness of God. Here's the first one. Number one, God is faithful to his law. God is faithful to his law. According to the Encyclopedia of Forensic and Legal Medicine, Volume 1, which if you ever struggle with insomnia, there's your cure. Um, but in the section on uh, Jewish laws surrounding death and life, they, they note this, that in the Halakha, which is the written collection of Jewish religious laws that are derived from the written law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and the oral law, the traditions of the Pharisees and the rabbis, we read that when a person dies they, and we have the body, that they must be identified and certified as dead within three days. Because by the third day, the face begins to change due to decomposition. And so, according to Jewish tradition and Jewish law, it has to be within three days in order to be certified as the right person. From a legal standpoint, from a Jewish legal standpoint, had Jesus been in the grave for three days and three nights, that little bit longer time, that might have been too long for him to be legally recognized in their culture as in his resurrection as the same person who'd been crucified. So what's going on? Well, the simplest answer is that in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus is speaking figuratively, not literally. Dr. Craig Keener, a prominent New Testament scholar, speaks to this. He says, three days and three nights need not imply complete days. Parts of a 24-hour day counted as representing the whole day. In early Jewish law, only after three days was the witness to a person's death accepted. Not only that, but in Matthew 27, 63, when the chief priests and Pharisees go to Pilate to ask for legal permission to put a seal over the tomb, they even reference Jesus' statement about rising again after three days. The point here is this. Jesus kept the law of God in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. So what's that mean for us? Well, here you can see the first thing right there. Jesus kept the law you never could. You can't do this. <laughs> You're, you're broken. You're fallen. The Bible uses the term sinner. Jesus kept the law that you never could. That's why his death for you on the cross, in your place for your sin, counts as a, redeem, as a redeeming factor in your life. He kept the law you could not. He obeyed where you have not. And therefore, his life his innocence, his moral perfection can be traded for your brokenness, your fallenness, your sinfulness. He kept the law you could not. The second thing this means for us is that Jesus paid the full price for your sin. He suffered an excruciating death under the law, and he paid the full legal penalty for your sin. He, he stood up under the maximum uh, penalty that anyone could be charged with legally. Jesus was faithful to the law. His resurrection proves that God is faithful to the law. That's not the only thing it proves. It also proves that God is faithful to his prophecies. <laughs> Mary Poppins said... Promises easily made are easily broken. I think she's right. God's promises were not easily made. They'd been a long time in coming. In fact, Jesus' advent into the world was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When God says to Eve that I will put enmity between, or says to the serpent rather, I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head predicting the life and resurrection of Jesus. 
Later we read in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses predicted a prophet would come one day. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And then see, Peter quotes this verse in Acts 3.22 referring to Jesus. Stephen quotes this verse in Acts 7.37 referencing Jesus. In Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, we get these powerful descriptive passages that effectively predict the the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This event, Jesus' death on the cross, in your place for your sins, his resurrection was predicted long before it happened. Jesus also repeatedly prophesied his own death and resurrection. The first one, as we've already seen, is in Matthew 12, 40. Let's look at that again. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So you go, yeah, but he's saying three nights. What's the deal? Well, one possibility to resolve this apparent difficulty is that when Jesus refers to three nights, he's also including Thursday. See, the Jews count time starting in the evening. Go back and read the creation account. There was evening and there was morning the first day. They start at night. And so some scholars think, oh, Jesus was actually referring to Thursday night when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's betrayed by Judas. That, they're in, they're, that Jesus, uh, figuratively speaking, is including that as well. And when you look at, it kind of lines up. When you look at his passion prediction, he almost always includes the suffering being handed over to the, the Romans. <laughs> he includes that as part of it. So perhaps that's what he's talking about. I still think that Matthew 12, 40 is more euphemistic, though, than it is literal. See, Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection at least three more times. He predicts it in Matthew 16, 21. He predicts it in Matthew, 6, or Matthew 17, 22 to 23. And he predicts it in Matthew 20, verse 18 to 19. The point in all this is that hundreds of years before it happened, the Old Testament predicted this. Jesus himself predicted this. So what's it mean for us? Two things. First of all, in the same context in Deuteronomy that predicted, the, where Moses predicted the ministry of Jesus, in the same context as that passage, Deuteronomy 18, he says that the way that you tell if a prophet is from God is if what they prophesy comes true. He said that's the sign. He goes, Moses told the Israelites, he said, if you want to know if a prophet is really from God, listen to what they say. And if what they say comes true, then they are from God. Secondly, I mean, Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof that he's from God. The second thing is that nothing surprises God. Nothing's a shock to him. He knows. And what that means is that you can take your deepest, darkest sin to him. And he's not going to be up in heaven on his throne going, Whoa, I didn't know that. Oh, man, they're bad. He knows. He already knows your deepest, darkest sin. He knows that horrible little seed of brokenness inside you that you don't want anybody to know about, that thing in your life that you're so ashamed of. He already knows, and he loves you anyway. He died for you anyway. He rose for you anyway. You're not going to pull one over on God. You're not going to shock him. He already knows. He already loves you. And the response he's looking for is the faith to trust him with it. See, that's the third thing. What God is looking for, what, what we see here is that the third area where Jesus' resurrection proves the faithfulness of God is that God is faithful to his plan. God is faithful to his plan. Do you remember the old TV show, The A-Team? 
Remember that, these guys? <laughs> I love that show as a kid. I, I go back and I watch it now as a dad, and I'm like, what on earth were my parents thinking letting me watch that show? Because I was just dumb enough to try some of that stuff that they did. Uh, you know, didn't, fortunately didn't have the resources. Um, my favorite part of the show was when Hannibal, the guy in the middle there, would say, after the A-team had saved the day, he would say, and some of you probably know exactly where I'm going with this, he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. I love that part. I was like, yes, yes, it's all, that's it, that's it, yeah. And sometimes I wonder if God is up in heaven thinking the same thing. I love it when a plan comes together. Not that he has any doubt that his plans will come to fruition, but he takes joy in seeing it happen. He takes joy in watching his plan to redeem you, to take your brokenness and by the grace of Jesus Christ make you whole again, to see that come to fruition in your life. See, Jesus' resurrection is proof that God is faithful to his plan. Peter made that clear on the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22 with me. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Again, those things function as proofs that Jesus is from God which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now check this out. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The betrayal of Jesus was not a shock to God. And you, and I don't know about this, but you can't prove I'm wrong, so we'll go with it. I think he pointed his finger right then in that sermon. But you, it's your fault. Jesus had to die. It's my fault Jesus had to die. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then my favorite two words in the whole Bible, but God. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because, get this, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that. It was impossible. God's plans are impossible to stop. Great preacher Phillips Brooks, who's probably most well-known for his beloved Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, also wrote a song about Easter. In that song, it goes like this. Tomb, thou shalt not hold him longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. It was God's plan to put right in one garden. The text tells us Jesus was buried in a tomb in a garden. It was God's plan to put right in one garden everything that went wrong in the other. Does that mean that God made us fail in the Garden of Eden so that he could come along thousands of years later and be the hero in the story? Not in any way. Adam and Eve chose their sin, and while their choice affects us each, every day, you would make the same choice in their shoes, or lack thereof, as it were. <laughs> we, you'd make the same choice again and again. We would choose to rebel against God's plan, but the grace of God is that he is still at work in your story. See, here's what this means for you. You may be here this morning, and your story may have gone awry. It may have gone off the rails. Your story may not be what you want it to be. We sang about that earlier. But the resurrection means that God is faithful to his plan for you. 
He's faithful to that. And he's taking your story as broken and warped and messed up as it is, and he's changing it. He's redeeming it. He's taking your brokenness, and he's writing wholeness into your story. He's taking your sin, and he's writing holiness into your story. He's taking the death in you, and he's writing in life. And if you believe in the resurrection, God is rewriting your story in accordance with his plan he intends glory for you, my friend. See, that's the fourth area where the resurrection of Jesus proves the faithfulness of God, and it's that God is faithful to you. It's quite tempting to see the Easter story as something that happened long ago and far away, but it's not just that. It means something. The greatest day in history affects your life this morning not only was God faithful to his law, not only was he faithful to his prophecies, not only is he faithful to his plan, he is also faithful to you. The Jesus resurrection is the prototype for us all, not just the resurrection that we will one day experience, I mean it is that, but also the resurrection life that we live right now. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, that, that we need to be experiencing this now. Look at what he says. Don't you know, implied answer, yes you should, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you understand what he's saying here? In baptism, you identify with and participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That when you became a Christian, when you chose to follow Jesus, when, you, when what happened to you is what you just saw earlier, that you identified with and participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your, what that means is your resurrection life starts now. It starts the day you come up out of those waters and God raises up a new person. And you, when you give your life to Jesus, your resurrection life starts right then. See, God is faithful to us. And because of that, we have a hope of a resurrection one day, but we've also been transformed in this life to live the resurrection. I think that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Look at this. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This resurrection life begins now heard a story about two young men in college. One of them was a Christian. The other was an agnostic. They had just gotten out of their philosophy class, and they were talking, and, and, and things, <laughs> as college students will, it turned philosophical. And they began talking about what they believed about life and the world around them. They were talking about all the great philosophers of the past and the great gurus, and the Christian turned to his friend. He said, well, tell me, what, what do you think about Jesus? And his agnostic friend said, oh, I love Jesus. I mean, his life, his teachings, it's great. They talked a little bit more about that. And the Christian said, well, what do you think about the resurrection? Oh, man, I don't know. It's a great story. I don't know if I buy it, but I love the story. He paused for a second, and this agnostic said, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but if it is, 
It changes everything. Now, I wish we had Paul Harvey here to tell us the rest of the story. I don't know how that guy's story ends. But if you're in Christ, I know how yours ends. And the amazing thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that the end of the story changes how the middle goes. Because God is faithful to you, the end of your story changes how the middle goes as well. You see, our resurrection life starts now. It starts now. The promise of the resurrection is not just a one-day promise. It's a today promise. Our resurrection life is now. Every time you obey a just law, you are living the resurrection. Every time you keep a promise, you are living the resurrection. Every time you follow God's plan for you, laid out in his word, you're living the resurrection. And every time you allow Jesus to love a fallen and broken world through you, you are living the resurrection. The resurrection life starts now. Why was Jesus in the tomb three days? To make good on a promise. A promise that God will be faithful to his law. God will be faithful to his prophecies. God will be faithful to the prophets. God will be faithful to his plan. And God is faithful to you. Did you hear me today? Jesus rose on the third day to prove that God is faithful. He's been faithful to you. Will you be faithful to him today? In a moment, we're going to sing together. And in that time, we're going to invite you to come to the front. God has been faithful to you. And he's asking you to be faithful to him. Maybe you're here today. And God is challenging you to live the resurrection life. But you're not totally sure what that looks like. We have a place that you can go. Maybe you just need to have a conversation with someone. It's called the Next Step Room. It's right under there, under the yellow awning. If you're in the balcony, you can just go all the way out to the edge and come down the stairs and go back around. It's probably the fastest way to get there. Maybe God is calling you today to live the resurrection life. You're like, I want to. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Maybe there's a stronghold in your life, an area where the the enemy, Satan, has gotten a hold of you. He tried to get a hold of Jesus, remember? Remember? And you just need someone to pray with you. We're going to have decision counselors down front, people ready to receive you. Maybe you're here today and you want to identify with and participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized. You've already seen four people do it today. Today's your ch- We're all ready. We got towels, clothes, everything you need. It's all upstairs. We're ready to go. If you want to do that today, there's no better day than Easter Sunday. We're going to have a time to respond to this today. Will you stand with me as we sing together?
Jesus, mercy, call my 